0: ministry and music tonight. Hebrews chapter number 12, Hebrews chapter number 12, now we will still be in our series on prophecy, but uh, we have uh, gone through uh, most of uh, the major events in God's prophetic timetable, and I know that we did it at, I don't know, the speed of a 747, I felt like, sometimes, um, and there's been questions that have kind of come along, maybe some passages or some topics that uh, you have uh, thought about or that even I have uh, found myself uh, going back over in my own study in preparation. And uh, one of the things I want to do over the next uh, several weeks, uh, Lord willing, is uh, continuing in this series on prophecy, but Doing some standalone type messages and dealing with some individual topics and some individual passages, and go back, and I know some of it will be review and repetition, but also I want us to see in maybe a little bit more of a microscopic type of fashion as we zero in a little bit more uh, closely on certain passages, Help us see how God weaves prophecy, really throughout Scripture, and sometimes we, we read and we, 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 we appreciate the Word of God. I'm not saying we don't appreciate the Word of God, but it's so easy to read over passages and say, you know, I'm not quite sure I understand that passage, but I'm in a hurry, or I don't have time, or I'll come back to it, or whatever the case may be, and I know I've done that many a time through, through my life. And yet I want to come back and I want to look at some passages that, that speak to prophetic events that God has weaved in to Scripture. And we see the unity of Scripture once again and how Scripture interprets Scripture. And we see one author who, by, of course, uh, God's very breath, the inspiration of God, delivered his word. And we have, yes, these human instruments. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we will see... How, once again, God takes this prophetic theme of the kingdom, weaves it into this passage as he is addressing Jews, Hebrews. Some of who were unsaved, who were depending upon the law for their salvation. Some of whom were saved, but still thinking they had to keep certain aspects of the law in order to stay right with God. As the writer of Hebrews, uh, some debate whether it's Paul or whether it's Barnabas or uh, whether it's uh, another uh, apostle. We, we know uh, there are certain aspects of the book of Hebrews that we believe, uh, scholars believe, that it had to have been someone with a uh, deep Jewish heritage. So there are many who, who believe that it was the apostle Paul, but uh, we are Uh, not 100%, scholars not 100% sure who it was as the human instrument that God chose to uh, give by inspiration these words, but we know that the book of Hebrews is full of Old Testament reference, full of references to the law. And yet in doing so, the writer of the book of Hebrews, by the inspiration of God, weaves in a message regarding prophecy and the kingdom. We just spent, uh, I know Pastor Harwood was here uh, last Sunday night. We had a wonderful time with him last Sunday, and uh, we were blessed uh, by uh, his message from 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, so it's been a couple weeks since we were in uh, the prophetic, uh, the, the series on prophecy. But let's go to Hebrews 12 once again. I'm going to do a quick review of the chapter uh, of Hebrews, chapter number 12. So let me pull my Computer up here, and uh, we will look at a kingdom which cannot be shaken. A kingdom which cannot be shaken. Understanding that the theme of the kingdom of God is throughout Scripture. And understanding that even among the apostles, among the disciples of Christ, this was a major theme that they were having a hard time fully grasping how Christ could speak of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, and yet why is he not ushering it in right now? And they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, not fully comprehending and understanding as we have been looking at in Sunday mornings, that Christ had to go to the cross first. And that going to the cross and dying for our sins and then rising again and ascending up into glory was all a part of God's redemption plan, but there had to be the cross before there was the crown of glory, so to speak. And what did, in Matthew 4, what did Satan tempt Jesus with? I will give you... This earthly kingdom, this temporary happiness, this temporary pleasure, this fleeting, unsatisfying, unfulfilling, earthly, temporal earth, this earthly kingdom, I'll give it to you. And, of course, Jesus Christ, as the God-man, as the Son of God, resisted the temptation, obviously sinless and holy and pure, rejected Satan's temptation to take the kingdom. What would have been, obviously, the sin in taking the kingdom? Didn't it already belong to Jesus Christ? Sure, the earth is his and the heavens. But he would have forfeited the eternal kingdom. He would have forfeited the redemption plan of God for a temporary earthly kingdom, and obviously as the Son of God, as the Holy Son of God, he would have never given in to that temptation, yet he was tempted like as, in all, as in, all, in all points, like as we are yet without sin as a as the perfect sinless Son of God. we can argue theologians have argued, could he have sinned uh, if. It, it was possible even for him to sin. My point isn't to get into a theological argument over, over all that. My point is that he was tempted, as the, the Bible says, in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. And there was the offer of an earthly kingdom. Speaking that, even Satan recognized that there is a war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, or the kingdom of Satan, and the disciples, even into those final days before Christ went to the cross, they are still wanting to have the kingdom, the Jewish kingdom, the the theocratic kingdom of God, to be ushered in, and for the Jews to rule and reign over the world, and for them to have their place of prominence in the kingdom, though they trusted Christ as the Messiah, they struggled with this understanding of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and that that cross must come before the crown, before the eternal kingdom, the millennial kingdom, of course, and the eternal kingdom. We've looked at the millennial kingdom, we've looked at in Revelation 21 and 22, the eternal kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, new Jerusalem. So now let's go to Hebrews chapter number twelve, and we're going to do a quick summary of this chapter, and then get into these final verses. We see in the book, or excuse me, in the chapter of chapter twelve of the book of Hebrews, we see this theme of running the race. The race of faith or the race of life, whatever you want to call it, with endurance, first of all. Wherefore, seeing we also are comes about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every way in the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So Paul or whoever the, the author that God is using by the inspiration of God to, to pen these words, okay, he is using the analogy of a race, which... They would have understood the Greek games, the Isthmian games, uh, the early Olympic games that would eventually come uh, from those Greek games. There was the understanding of a competitive race. And so that analogy, that illustration is being used. But we have to understand, and I think we all do as believers, as Uh, people who are well taught in the, the truth of God's word, we understand that our race is not against each other. I am not in a race with my wife trying to push her out of the way and get her out of her lane so that I can beat her to the prize. Nor is there another person in the church that is jockeying for position and trying to outrun me or someone else in the church to try to be the first one to cross the finish line. We understand it's not a race in that sense. We are all striving for the crown to be at the judgment seat of Christ and to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, to receive our rewards, to be found faithful. We are not in a race of competition against each other. We are in a race of endurance of faith, the race of life that God has called us to, and we are to run with our Eyes on the prize, on the crown, as Paul would say in Philippians chapter number three. And he even talks about beating up himself. I beat myself. I discipline myself that I might be uh, worthy, that I might strive for the mastery, strive for excellence, to be the best runner I can be, to run in my lane, to do what God's will is for me, and to win the crown or the crowns and the lay up treasures in heaven and set his affections on things above as we are reminded in scripture to do. So that's the race. And we're to do, we're to be running this race with endurance. I am not a runner. I've joked around before about those stickers on the back of people's windshields, in the back of their cars that'll say 26.2, 13.1. I like the 0.0. That would be my sticker on the back of my, on my car. I, I, I just don't, I don't have good knees. I've never enjoyed running just to run around in circles like on a track or on a treadmill. I'd rather walk. I'd rather walk in an area where there's some woods and some scenery and uh, there's something to, to look at. or, or I, I enjoy listening to podcasts or music or things like that, but I'm just, I'm just not a runner. I know some people, that is like their life, and they run four or five miles a day. They're training for 5Ks and mini marathons, and month of May, there will be the mini marathon down in Indianapolis, and I know people uh, who have trained for that and other types of things, and uh, that's just not, not my thing. Again, I'd, I'd rather walk. I, I, I know I need uh, exercise, but w- whether we're in a walk or whether we're in a 5K, or we're in a game of some sort, like basketball, or soccer, or whatever the sport may be, there is a measure of endurance that is required. What happens at the end of a basketball game, I know that my coach did this regularly, there is fatigue that sets in, and then there's the free throws in a... Soccer team that isn't in shape will wear down and their defense will suffer and they'll give up that tying goal or that winning goal. Endurance, we understand it for sports, for success, for competitiveness, for victory on the field. What about in life? There is a measure of endurance that we must have. We have to have a perseverance. And so we run with patience, with endurance. We have to persevere through life. And we do so by remembering those who have run before us and by laying aside sins and weights. Those are there in, excuse me, in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then we see also in these verses, going down all the way down through verse 11, we see that we are... To run this race of life with endurance, not only by remembering those who have run before us, the great cloud of witnesses, by laying aside weights and sins, by looking, but also by looking to Jesus. We consider his suffering, and then we compare our suffering. And then we even run the race of life with endurance by understanding that God has a purpose in our chastening and accepting God's chastening. We, can, we don't have time to go through the entire passage, but it's very clear that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's a quote even from Proverbs there in verse number 6. And if ye endure chastening, verse 7 says, God dealeth with you as with sons. So as children of God, because God loves us, we're going to have some chastening. It's one of the evidences of saving faith that Whom the Lord loves, he's going to chasten. He's not going to let us get away with our sin. We have trusted Christ as our Savior. That sin is forgiven, but that fellowship when we sin is broken, and God wants our fellowship to be restored. And we have to confess, and we have to forsake our sins. But there's chastening that comes. I'm thankful for every single one of the spankings that I got. I wasn't thankful at the time. My dad would have turned 82 yesterday, and my sister and I texted back and forth a little bit. Um, I remember being down at, um, we were down at Pensacola just a a week and a half or so ago, and I mentioned uh, I saw that little house where where we lived. That house was under 1,000 square feet. Josiah looked it up on some real estate website and found out that little house was under 1,000 square feet. How did four of us live in a house that was under 1,000 square feet? But I got some of the biggest spankings of my life in that house, <laughs> and, and yet that's the, the the place where I trusted Christ as, as my Savior. Good good memories. Um, some were a little harder memories, but I needed that. I'm thankful for those spankings that taught me not to lie and not to steal and not to be disrespectful and, and to obey, etc. So we see the, the the running of this race of life with endurance. But then we also see, in verses 12 through 17, the the running of the race of life, the race of faith, with holiness. As believers, we are called to holiness. We see there in verse 12, lift up the hands which hang down the feeble knees. And those are uh, proverbial type of statements. Uh, it may not necessarily mean physical hands, but the idea, uh, the representation of hands and knees, uh, being representative of uh, our need for humility, for submission to God, Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, verse 15, lest any man fall or fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness bring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. We pursue peace and holiness, and we avoid bitterness. Isn't it interesting that in this race of faith, this race of life, That there's a warning about bitterness because God knows the human heart and how tempted we are to hold a grudge and to be angry at our brothers and our sisters in Christ and how easy it is for us to let bitterness get a hold of our hearts and our minds and people will hang on to things sometimes for years There are husbands and wives who end up in divorces because they have kept long lists. They can remember things that happened 15, 20 years before, and they'll bring it up, and they'll drag it back out. Bitterness, it it devours us. It's a root uh, that brings bitter fruit in our lives. So we are to avoid bitterness, and then we're to avoid immorality. And apostasy, all of this is a part of running the race of life with holiness. And then third, the race of life, this race of faith, we run with assurance. And that's verses 18 through 24. He reminds them and us of heaven, and he takes them back to where? In verse 18, for ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which they had heard and treated, that the words should not be spoken to them anymore. What is he referencing? Mount Sinai. Dan uh, Clark brought up Mount Sinai today in the Sunday school lesson. And they were not even so much as allowed to touch the mountain while Moses was up on the mountain, as it was surrounded at the top by the glory of God and Moses was receiving the commandments, the law, if they so much as touched the mountain, God would strike them dead. He's taking them back and reminding them of the necessity of holiness and then also of the glory of God that would come, that they would physically, as believers, enter into the very glory of God in heaven. Okay, And he continues down and we get to verse 22. And then verse 23, where there's the mention of Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable innumerable company of angels. Can't pronounce that word very well. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Into Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, into the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. I wish we had time to unpack all of this, and we don't have the time to do it. He's just simply taking them back to the Old Testament and reminding them of the symbols and the representations that pointed to Jesus Christ. Because remember, these. Hebrews, these Jews, there are some in this group who are unsaved, who are depending upon the law for their righteousness. But there are some who, in, who are saved in this group. There's, a, a, I believe, a majority group that are saved individuals in this church of Jews, of Hebrews. They're saved, but they're still trying to keep aspects of the law and the ceremonies to be right with God. And what is the writer of the book of Hebrews, by the inspiration of God, what is he pointing them to once again? He's bringing up these Old Testament references, these symbols, these pictures, and he's taking them and pointing them to who? Jesus Christ. The new covenant. Fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And then he takes them. Oops, I went too far. To our fourth point. There we go. To where we want to take the, the, the bulk of our time here tonight. In verses 25 through 29. And he draws their focus now. To running the race of life. The race of faith. With their eyes on God's unmovable kingdom. We get to verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth much more. Shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. In this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. He says, first of all, do not refuse him. Now think about this for a minute. Someone who is in a race, someone who is playing basketball, even as maybe a game is finishing up right now, any kind of sporting event, There is a goal, there is an aim. I know for a period of time, and maybe this is still the case in some kids' leagues, they don't keep score, because everybody wins, right? Everybody gets a participation award, everybody just has fun. And I remember when we had a, a sports ministry at our former ministry for a while, there were some parents who were like, and grandparents who were like, oh, let's not keep score. Let's just let the little boys and girls have fun. Well, we said we're not trying to make this a competitive league to prepare your child from going to 6th grade into the NBA. Okay? So we've we got to help you understand that this is not NBA preparatory league at the 4th through 6th grade level and, and below. Some you know you know what I'm saying. Some parents and grandparents, they get really into this. So we, we tried to help them understand. But there were some who were coming to us and saying, well, let's just not even keep score. Let's just have fun. And we're like, but that, but that takes away. That takes away the goal. That, that there's out there shooting the ball and throwing it around. It takes away some of the points of the game. Not that it's all about winning. Okay, but there's a goal in mind. We as believers, we don't just... Go through this life trying to just kind of, well, you know, hopefully we can survive and keep our head above water. Uh, Maybe I can do it better than that person or do it better than that person. At least I'm not living like that worldly person over there. I'm not living like that carnal Christian over there. And we spend our lives like this. How effective are we going to be in the race of life, the race of faith? Fulfilling the will of God, laying up treasures in heaven, seeking first the kingdom of God, setting our affections on things above. How are we ever going to accomplish anything for the Lord if we're walking around like this? What, what, what point would it be if all we did in our sporting events is if we just kicked the ball around? You know, the guys out there, I've seen some pretty competitive soccer games. Chandler played soccer for several years. I've seen some pretty intense soccer games. This is one of my beefs against soccer. Sorry for all you soccer fans, but what kind of a game ends in a tie after playing hard for 90 minutes running around at different temperatures and you run 50 yards for somebody to kick the ball the other way and then your game ends in a tie? Anyway, there there are times where there's a tie. I get it. But it would be foolish just to have... A bunch of guys run around and throw the ball back and forth, maybe shoot the ball in the hoop once in a while, or throw the ball in a football game down to one end or the other. But there'll never be a score. There'll never be a goal, there'll never be a focus. Everybody's worried about what everybody else is doing. That would be silly. It doesn't make any sense. There's a scoreboard. there's a clock. There's a win. Or a loss. There's something in the column. There's then, as we are seeing in high school sports right now, in, in Indiana, the great state of Indiana, and March Madness coming, and uh, all that. There's a goal, right? There's a focus. Number one seed in this region, and survive and advance, and on and on. We, there's a goal. But we as believers, and so many times I meet people, Oh, yeah, I used to go to church, oh yeah, I know yeah you, I, God doesn't expect us to be that sold out for him really you, you you're just you're just a fanatic. Go to church two or three times a week. who does that anymore? Don't we have busy lives? God understands study the Bible that much, really you're going to spend that much time. I remember even when I was uh, understanding the the call of God in my life to be to be a pastor, I remember good people saying, "Why are you going to go and spend four, or six, whatever how many many years studying for the ministry? Why would you do that? What would be the point?" There are people like that with all of the wickedness around, who still would rather spend more time. And I'm not saying it's wrong to be interested in politics. I enjoy politics. I follow politics. I'm not saying it's wrong to be interested in some of these, these other areas. But we have believers who spend more time and have more interest in all of the things of this world, and in politics and in all these other topics, and are completely losing sight of why we're here and what God has called us to do And what our responsibilities are before the Lord in the fact that there is eternity to come. And we only have a certain time for some of us. We we don't know. Our race, our finish line might be right out here. Our finish line might be in our sleep tonight. There are some people whose finish line was in their sleep. They never woke up the next morning. We don't know, but we have a goal, and it's an unmovable, unshakable. We we, we've heard, over the last few years, we have heard a lot about moving goalposts. Two weeks to slow the spread. Do I need to say anything more? <laughs> All the goalposts that keep moving... Kelly probably can remember how frustrated I was as a school principal. It changed. Every week, it changed from Tuesday to Friday. An announcement about COVID and what we could do and not do for school was on Tuesday. And by Friday, when I'm on a Zoom meeting with the the Indianapolis Health Department, it had changed. And they would send out memos, and it had changed some more. I didn't know what to think sometimes. It was ridiculous. Moving goalposts. Does God move the goalposts of the Christian life? Of what we are supposed to do and how we're supposed to live? He doesn't change it. And we have an unshakable, and unmovable kingdom. He makes reference to not refusing him. Don't resist the work of Christ in your life. Don't resist Christ and his work and his conviction and all that he is doing in our lives. We can't resist it. When we resist it, We get ourselves in big trouble. And to resist Christ will literally place us under the judgment of God. Now, we go back and we read here in Hebrews chapter 12. And we see a reference in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth. That is probably a reference all the way back to Exodus 19 in verse 18, We're at Mount Sinai, as the voice of God gave the law, the mountain, the earth quaked, the earth shook. Now, I only only lived in California for five and a half years. My mom and dad said they experienced some earthquakes out there. I remember as a high school kid, we were practicing for teen choir, and there was a little rumble that came through Indiana. Some of you... um, May remember that that would have probably been in the <clears throat> the early '90s. Um, but uh, some of the some of the kids looking around said, "Early '90s? What's that?" <laughs> some of you remember the '90s very well. But there was a little rumble. Maybe we've had some since then. I just remember that uh, as a kid. You know, my mom and dad talked a little bit about earthquakes. 1906, there was an earthquake that leveled the city of San Francisco. 1989, uh, as I was getting ready to watch my favorite team play Game Three of the World Series. And all of a sudden the TV went out and there was a catastrophic earthquake and it delayed the World Series, I forget, I think maybe 10 days or so. We know what happened over in Turkey, the earthquake, the devastation. We can go to scripture and we can look at in Haggai chapter 2 and verse number 6, a prophecy of the Messiah That is fulfilled even in Matthew 27 in verse 54 when there was an earthquake at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And there was another earthquake at his resurrection in Matthew 28 in verse number 2. Has God shaken the earth? Is there a reference back? Would they as Jews, as Hebrews, would they have remembered the law, the, the book of Exodus, and when God shook the earth at Mount Sinai, you better believe they would understand that reference. They would know God had shaken the earth, but then notice that even the heavens are shaken. We read here, but now he hath promised saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. This is likely a reference to the future shaking of heaven, the agitating of heaven, the tremors of heaven in the firmament, the atmosphere, the heavens. 2 Peter chapter 3, that we have looked at recently in our series on prophecy, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. This is probably a reference to the cataclysm where God creates a new heaven and a new earth, and usher's in the new Jerusalem the old earth the old heavens are passed away and there's a new heaven a new earth in the new Jerusalem okay and he makes reference earlier in verse 22 to mount zion into the city of the living god the heavenly Jerusalem into an innumerable company of angels in verse 22 to the general assembly in church of the firstborn. Christ himself being the firstborn from the dead, the preeminent firstborn, the, the greatest of all those who are resurrected. Christ is the greatest, the firstborn, the preeminent, the priority. We are going to be resurrected and we are going to inhabit the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. And he makes reference to the heavens shaking in order to prepare for that new Jerusalem, that new heavens, the new earth. If God shook the earth, can he not shake the universe and create a new heaven and a new earth? So what's he coming back to? What's he keep bringing us back to and bringing these believers back to? We have... A unmovable kingdom. God shook the earth. God will shake the heavens. So how then are we to live? Let's go on. Verse 27. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken. This earth and this universe, they are temporary in a sense, he is saying. And of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore? We receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. What is He ultimately bringing us back to? Don't live for this world. The law had a purpose. point us to Jesus Christ to reveal our sin and to point us to Jesus Christ. The law could not save. It revealed our sinfulness. None of us have kept the commandments. None of us have kept them all. And if we're guilty of breaking one commandment, we are guilty in a sense of breaking all because you break the link of one one link of a chain. The whole chain is considered broken. We may not have stolen anything but we have coveted and I would say that we probably all have stolen something. We may not have lied, which we all have lied, but we would say, well, I've only told a little white lie. No, we've all lied. We've all been deceitful in some sense. No, oh, I didn't murder, but we've hated. We've desired for somebody to really get it because don't they deserve it after what they did to me, right? Okay? And Jesus dealt with that in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? About the heart. We've all violated The law of God. So, we are all guilty before God. The law can't save. The law also can't sanctify us, keep us right with God. Okay, there's believers here in this group of Hebrews, in this church of Hebrews, who are thinking that in order to stay right with God, they have to keep the law, the ceremonial aspects, as much as they can. Obviously, under certain conditions, they weren't able to do everything, so they're suffering from doubt and discouragement. How can they ever please God and how can they ever serve the Lord? and maybe it's not worth it? And on and on, the questions can, can go. And what does he keep bring, what, does he, what does he keep bringing them back to? The kingdom of God. okay, do we, do we have? A responsibility in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Do we have a responsibility to obey the Lord? Yes. As saved people, we are citizens of His kingdom. Our conversation is in heaven, we read in Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we are to live right now in this place on this temporary earth, which will be shaken, and the universe itself will be shaken. But we are a citizen of heaven, of his kingdom, so we're to live right now in this earth, which is going to pass away, in this universe, which is going to pass away. We have a responsibility to live as a citizen of heaven. And a citizen of heaven is not living by the temporal things of this earth. And there will be, yes, the judgment of God that will come. For the unsaved, there will be that ultimate accounting at, at the white, great white throne judgment, as we've looked at in Revelation, where they will not be found. Their name will not be found, the Lamb's book of life. Be cast into the lake of fire. But there's, for the believer, there's the fiery judgment of God at the judgment seat of Christ that's referenced in 1 Corinthians 3 that burns up the wood, hay, and the stubble. Do we have gold, silver, and precious stones laid up in heaven? Are we living as citizens of the heavenly kingdom right now, understanding the temporariness of this earth and not being caught up in the carnality and the sensuality? And I was just reading an article this week that did me a world of good as this preacher Talked about the the trend, the trendiness of churches today, trying to keep up with all the trends, following certain individuals and personalities who are trendy, instead of focusing on what God says and Christ says for His church, getting caught up in all of the things that the world is doing, and how can we mimic and pattern the world in order to reach people with the gospel, and in. Doing so, we make light of the gospel. We hide the gospel instead of making it clear and plain. And he is dealing with that to some degree, even right here in Hebrews 12. That as they try to keep all the ceremonial aspects of the law, all these different trappings from the Old Testament, and trying to somehow make all that fit into the Christian life, and they get caught up in all the legalism. And I'm not saying that we don't have rules in our lives. We have rules, but our relationship with Jesus Christ is not so much about rules and duty, but about a love for Christ and a desire to please him. So we serve him acceptably in the right way. How? With reverence and godly fear. We read here in verse 28. We have this knowledge of this kingdom that is eternal so it affects how we live it affects our choices and our decisions are our decisions, our choices our priorities our morals, our values our virtues are they based on the kingdom of God the unmovable kingdom, the eternal, the will of God, the promises, the principles, the commands of God's word, his eternal truths, or are our priorities, our values, our morals, our virtues, or lack thereof, based on this temporary world that is going to be shaken. I wish we had time As he closes here in verse 29 with a warning, for our God is a consuming fire. I wish we had time to go to all the passages. We don't have the time to do so. But we see fire in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. We go all the way back to Genesis 15. We see it in Exodus 3. We see the sacrificial system, how many of the sacrifices where fire was offered. We, we, we could go, there, there are so many references, we, we can't possibly even look at even one or two of them tonight because of time. But we see fire throughout Scripture. It's a reference to the judgment of God, yes. Fire on the altar, where the Baal worshippers, as Elijah was there. The fire on Sodom and Gomorrah but there's also a fire of purity. God's refining fire. One commentator talked about fire being warmth, fire producing warmth, fire producing light, and fire producing purity. And when we think of our God being a consuming fire, yes, there's the judgment of God, that aspect of him, that godly fear of coming under his judgment. But there's also the fire of reverence. That fire produces warmth and purity and light, but we fear it, we keep it in its proper place. We have a fireplace, we turned it on this afternoon because it was 33 degrees in Indiana with with the Indiana drizzle. I call it the Indiana drizzle, where it's not really raining, it's not really fog, but it's just this drizzle, right? And it's this cold, it's just this wet kind of cold, we turned the fireplace on, and our, our dog was getting a little too curious, about the fire. Not maybe completely understanding in his puppy mind the fear that he should have of the fire. You keep the fire in its proper place, it does a lot of good, doesn't it? Some of you have a wood-burning stove. I've heard some of you talk about your wood-burning stoves and the warmth that it provides. But you open up that wood-burning stove, you let those logs and those embers fall on the floor in your house, and you're not going to want the warmth of that fire Don't burn your house down. Fire in its proper place. There's a godly fear, but there's a reverence. And as we look at and we set our eyes on God's unmovable, unshakable kingdom, it takes and it focuses our life. And we live acceptable lives, well, lives that are pleasing to God with a proper fear but a proper reverence for God as well. And that's what the kingdom of God does for us in one sense right now. We love to talk about the glories of the kingdom, of the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom and the new Jerusalem, and rightly so. God's given us a a certain amount of revelation regarding those things, and we've looked at them in our prophecy series. But... There is the spiritual aspect of the kingdom that we must remember right now in that kingdom of God is unmovable. It is unshakable. And we are to have the eternal values of God's kingdom as citizens of heaven and not the values of this earth and its carnality and its temporalness. May we be faithful, focused, obedient, citizens of God's eternal kingdom and running the race of faith, the race of life with our eyes on God's immovable kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that helps us as we go through this great chapter and just really scratch the surface of so much that could be unpacked from this chapter. Lord, it, it helps us to renew once again our focus. Lord, there are all sorts of kingdoms of men. There are men and women all around the earth right now trying to build little kingdoms of power and influence. Overreaching, Lord, the boundaries that you have even set because of their pride and their rebellion against you. Lord, may we not be caught up in all of that selfish, sensual, and carnal, prideful kingdom building of this temporary earth. But Lord, may our values, may our thoughts, our morals, everything about us, Lord, be set by and measured by the kingdom of God with our eyes focused on the unmovable, unshakable kingdom of God. May, Lord, that set our, our mind and our focus that our affections will be on things above, not on things here on the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.